Hey, ¿qué pasa, Calexico? Welcome back to the podcast. Um, like always, before we begin, I want to thank a couple of people. I want to thank Sergio. Sergio Armenta, thank you for sponsoring the podcast. Um, I, was, I, to, I also want to thank David Gastelum. Um, if you're thinking of buying or selling a home in the Imperial or San Diego County, make sure to call David, 760-235-9576. And lastly, I want to thank um, all the essential workers, you know, all those nurses, police officers, firefighters, people stocking our supermarkets, you know, all those essential workers that are out there um, putting, you know, themselves out there in risk, you know, to keep us safe and fed and, you know, everything that we need for to be a, a little bit normal in these in these um, hard times. <clears throat> Today's guest um, is somebody that, you know, I've been trying to get a hold for a while, but, you know, I've heard that he's really, really hardworking man. And I'm really thankful that he, you know, took this time for, for me today. Um, I want to thank Eduardo Garcia for being here today. Thank you for taking this time. Um, so before we begin, can you tell a little bit about yourself? You know, I know that um, from what I heard, you have you know, a lot of roots here in the valley. You know, we can, you can um, um, really uh, compare, you know, you're growing up to us here in the valley, even though you didn't grow up here in the valley, but... You know, we have a lot of similarities. And when it comes to, you know, being somebody from migrant parents, you know, living in a desert, you know, all these things that we have in common from, you know, the, the, your constituents here in the Valley. So, um, as you mentioned, uh, thank you for um, for having us or for reaching out to us uh, on a number of occasions to have uh, have us on your show. Uh, we're uh, happy that we finally have uh, connected and uh, it's great to be able to uh to one meet you and certainly talk to um, to your audience in Imperial Valley. Uh, my name is Eduardo. I was uh, born and raised in the Coachella Valley, but uh, my parents are from Mexicali. Uh, my dad uh, grew up in La Colonia Orizaba, and my uh, mother in La Colonia uh, Pueblo Nuevo. And so um, many of our uh, relatives uh, remain uh, living in Mexicali or live uh, throughout Imperial County. In fact, growing up in the Coachella Valley, I had uh, uh, no family growing up uh, in uh, Coachella. In fact, uh, every Saturday morning, there wasn't even a question in terms of what we were doing that weekend. We were jumping on my my dad's little 1984 Nissan Datsun, uh, all three of us, myself, my mom, and I, and driving down to Mexicali through 111 because uh, Highway 86 wasn't uh, fully uh, built yet. And so, um, you know, I, I grew up in, in Coachella, spent a lot of, as I mentioned, my weekends in Mexicali and a lot of my school breaks, my summer breaks, my Christmas breaks, spring breaks. I actually got to spend them uh, in Imperial County with Familia in Westmoreland or in Hopeville. Uh, my cousins, uh, Martinez family, who uh, grew up and, and still live right across the street the, uh, from the baseball field. Uh, there on Holt Avenue. And so a lot of my summer breaks were hanging out with my cousins, uh, either in Mexicali or in uh, in uh, in uh, the Imperial Valley. But uh, I, I grew up in Coachella, I went to the public schools there. Uh, those who know me uh, know that um, we were involved in sports, uh, soccer, baseball, uh, football. And they also know that, um, like, I wasn't probably... Uh, uh, the honor roll student when I was going uh, to school. I, uh, I knew that I needed to do enough 
to play sports, to get a 2.0, but never uh, beyond that um, because my interest was uh, not always centered around my education. And I'll, and I'll share a little bit about that um, as we continue the conversation in terms of how uh, reflecting on that, uh, it takes me back to my time uh, spent at the community college in, uh, in uh, College of the Desert, having to make up a lot of, uh, a lot of that time uh, that wasn't invested um, uh, smartly and uh, strategically during my time in middle school or high school. But uh, growing up in Coachella, I grew up uh, for first 10, 10 years of my life as a single, uh, single uh, child or only child. And then uh, uh, soon came uh, my, my young brother, who's 10 years younger than I am. He's uh, an artist, musician, uh, loves to uh, sing and dance and write his music, uh, uh, performs all over Southern California, including the Coachella Music Festival and a couple of events in Imperial County, the Rib Cookoff being one of his annual uh, events where he performs. But uh, my parents, uh, as I mentioned, are from Mexicali. They uh, ended up in Coachella uh, as a result of following the the season, the the work season in the agricultural fields. Uh, they started off in Imperial County, went through Coachella, and interestingly enough, on uh, May third, I actually drove up to Sacramento as we got back to the legislative session and uh, on the way, you know, uh, eight hour drive, get to make a lot of phone calls and talk to a lot of people. And somewhere along the lines, uh, I got a call from my mom and as I was driving past uh, Bakersfield and all of those small little towns that are there. And she was remembering her time with my dad and other members of our familia and friends who they used to, you know, come together to follow the, the crops uh, and the work. Then she shared with me something that I was not aware and familiar with, where she actually met my dad uh, working in the fields up here in the Central Valley. Uh, they met in the uh, uh, Bakersfield area and then went on to uh, work in the Salinas Valley, uh, where uh, there they, you know, courted one another. And, and from that season of work, uh, went back to Mexicali as a boyfriend and girlfriend and um, eventually, you know, uh, married and um, on one of those trips to work in the fields in the Coachella Valley, decided that that's where they would call home. And so um, that was uh, interesting how that happens. I, I just learned that a month or so ago uh, from a you know casual conversation uh, with uh, with my mother as I was driving up to Sacramento for work um, early early in uh, uh, last month. But uh, you know, I I, uh, I mentioned I community college. Um, I'm a product of the community college system. Uh, after graduating from Coachella Valley High School um, several decades ago, um, 1995 to be exact, uh, that's when I graduated from high school. And uh, I spent some time uh, prior to enrolling into the community college uh, working, uh, which was one of my uh, aspirational goals after graduating from high school. It wasn't to continue with school. It was to get to work. And, uh, and I did so. I worked uh, at a retirement home uh, in a, a dining room. I worked um, at the Marriott uh, as a guest services representative. And uh, I always tell people that job for me was uh, so important because as I decided to enroll in the community college and I started taking general education classes, or even before that, it was my remedial classes, uh, reading and writing and math classes that I needed to um, brushing up on because of 
I like to, you know, look back and, and be honest because of the lack of effort and work that I, that I didn't do in high school, I, I had to make up for it at the community college. And so I got to spend almost four years at the community college prior to being eligible to transfer to uh, the university. And I, I used to be embarrassed of saying I spent four years at the community college before going on to university, but realizing that there are people that spend a lot more time there for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and not just uh, because they weren't ready and they had to take classes at the, at the beginning of you know, the remedial level, but because they're working, uh, because of, uh, of life circumstances, right? Um, because of uh, economic reasons that, that are kind of, you know, out of our control. So realizing though, but those four years really prepared me to go on to the University of California, Riverside, where uh, there I spent two years and exactly two years on uh, getting my, my uh, bachelor's degree in uh, political science. I was always interested in, in government and history. Um, and I got minors in both Chicano studies and Native American studies, where my goals at that time were to go back and teach uh, at the high school that I actually got to uh, graduate from, which is Coachella Valley High School. And I did get to do that right upon um, graduating from UCR. And I also did some work in the adult education school, which really motivated me to uh, get into public service, uh, along with uh, a couple of internships that I did. Uh, one in high school, my junior year, where I actually was a uh, audio tech person at the Coachella City Hall, where I actually um, videotaped the city council meetings. And uh, that planted the seed in terms of wanting to pursue uh, public office, you know, as a crazy idea, uh, saying, you know, someday I'm going to be the mayor of this town. And uh, everyone thought I was nuts. Uh, <laughs> no one, uh, you know, has the aspirations to to be the mayor of a town at the time, you know, people, people uh, responded to me. And then another internship that I did later on in, um, in my college years was with a tribe. And uh, the tribe is the Cabazon Band of Mission Indians who owns and operates the Fantasy Springs Casino there in uh, Indio. And um, that internship was in their government affairs department where I got to learn about tribal sovereignty um, intergovernmental relationships between the tribes and the local and county government entities. And I became interested in that area, which is why I pursued the degree in Native American studies uh, at the university was to make, really kind of get a better understanding, a more formal and historical perspective on, on, on the history of uh, tribes in California and across the country. So uh, that's a little bit about like my educational background my uh, little bit of some early on work experience um, in my uh, early, uh, you know, journey as a college graduate. But I got to tell you, um, you know, today I, I get to work as a as a legislator, a lawmaker uh, here in Sacramento, representing, you know, uh, what is the, the hometown of uh, many of my relatives uh, in Imperial County and, uh, you know, where my mom and dad, you know, work tirelessly uh, in the fields. And um, where I was born and raised, and it's an honor to be able to uh, serve uh, in this capacity. Not a not an easy task, uh, uh, similar to you know any other job, right? There's uh, the dynamics, both uh, of the human dynamics, 
uh, uh, the, the needs, the wants, the priorities, and making decisions that you know aren't always going to be popular and or accepted by all and trying to balance those things along with um, the politics, the politics of the decision-making process, right? Politics is kind of what happens in the process of getting to an end goal of, uh, of what our priorities are. And so that's a little bit about me. I'm married, uh, happily married. I have a wife, uh, Stephanie. I have a stepdaughter, uh, Taylor, who's 16. I have a son who's 16. Uh, and then uh, we have a little daughter. Her name is Ella, uh, more uh, famously known as Ella from Coachella. She even <laughs> has her little hashtag, Ella from Coachella. And so uh, she's been running around with me um, the entire time that I've been in the state legislature at events, activities, uh, has traveled to Sacramento with me, and also loves to uh, eat um, burritos de machaca from the uh, sopes y flautas place there in Calexico and in uh, El Centro. So um, that's, a, that's a little bit about me. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, I, feel, I feel, even though I wasn't born and raised in Imperial County, uh, even though I didn't go to the schools there, right? Um, I feel very connected and very rooted uh, to Imperial County. And I think that's why, you know, if you look at the things that we work on uh, through uh, the work as a lawmaker, you know, we've prioritized the, the things that are important and that impact, you know, people directly, um, like air quality issues, water quality issues, um, the issue of uh, economic development and investment uh, in the area because, I mean, we, we know that those are uh, big issues that uh, the people of uh, Imperial County uh, face on a daily basis. And so um, thank you for the question and certainly uh, great again to uh, to be on your show. And that's how we started. And I'll kind of summarize it with that again. <laughs> um, you mentioned, um, you know, making decisions that um, not always, you know, go well with everybody that you represent. Um, I was reading up on, you know, you know the how many constituents you have, and you have around, well, according to Wikipedia, there's 146, 165,000 more or less. Am I, am I right or? So, so we we represent a district. There are uh, 80 assembly districts, and then there's 40 uh, senate uh, districts in the state, and then you've got the executive office, which is the governor. In each assembly district, you actually have uh, close to uh, 500,000 residents that we represent. And in the Senate, it's almost uh, closer to 1 million. So you can imagine um, almost 500,000 people that we represent uh, of all ages, of all uh, backgrounds and um, both religious beliefs uh, and, uh, and cultures that um, that come into this uh, place of how do we set priorities uh, for our region that people uh, will all agree on, and, and that's near to impossible, but how do we prioritize things um, that will have an impact on the majority of the people that we represent in the district is more uh, of the approach that we like to take. Um. I'm trying to tie in that with, you know, the, the number of constituents, you know, how to make decisions, um, trying to tie in that with um, the census. How does the census, you know, making sure people fill out the census, how does it help you and everybody in, 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 in the state, in the capital, make more decisions, you know, to better suit everybody? 
So that's a good question because we are in the in the season, right, of promoting uh, the census and making sure that everyone um, uh, ensures that they're accounted for. Um, how the census plays a role um, is very, very clear. It, it, it designates uh, the amount of resources that go to specific places uh, in our country. And depending on population, right, um, that's how they break down uh, the investments that are made in public safety and healthcare and education and infrastructure like roads and bridges and things of that sort. Um, and so it also plays a role in as you have growing communities, uh, the amount of people that live there also determine the way that boundaries for elected office are set up. So for example, the congressional seat in our area, the assembly and the Senate seat, um, and those same uh, numbers get utilized as you draw boundaries for districts um, at local level elections, right? Uh, uh, to make sure that they are distributed uh, fairly on um, socioeconomic boundaries uh, along with populations. And so people accounting for themselves in the census has a tremendous amount of implications on the money that we receive, but also on the landscape of what the politics, the boundaries of these um, districts look like when it comes down to it. The assembly, the Senate, uh, and in some instances, the data that is collected is oftentimes used also to set up districts um, locally for uh, County Board of Supervisors and things of that sort. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the census is important. And I think today more than ever, uh, it becomes even uh, more important when we're looking at the needs that we have during this pandemic crisis uh, of COVID-19, the need for greater healthcare infrastructure uh, and services uh, alone, I think has come to the forefront um, of the crisis and of course, how the census also plays a role. Yeah, um, yeah and kind of like um, moving into that, you know, COVID, um, how would, how would that, because here in Calexico, here in the in Prairie Valley in general, you know, you've seen how, you know, hospitals have been impacted with, you know, patients with COVID-19. Uh, you know, here in Calexico, we don't even have a hospital. Um, how does the census, you know, how does getting people counted for could eventually help out Calexico get a hospital or get a, you know, more money to build bigger hospitals here in the Valley. So, so the, the numbers, right. Uh, are reported to the federal government, right. And uh, in order to make a clear assessments of population that's existing and population projections um, that are to come, right. You can, uh, based on patterns of growth, right, and development, you can also project more or less how many people we will have by X, Y, and Z year, right? And so for purposes of this conversation, you know, being able to provide that data, uh, it goes to the appropriate federal agencies that are making decisions on ensuring that federally qualified healthcare centers are receiving the adequate funding to take care of the population that we're speaking of in this case, whether it be Calexico or the entire border region of Imperial County. Um, so that's the most uh, practical way of, uh, of sharing with you how significant that is. 
Of course, um, moving to other areas, you know, we have uh, border infrastructure needs, uh, whether it be, you know, the expansion of the port of entries to get goods movements flowing uh, safely, uh, but also making sure that, you know, vehicles and trucks are not idling for hours um, that are not only interrupting economic progress, but also are causing some environmental problems uh, in the, with the air, right? The quality of the air and impacting uh, the public health of people who live along the border. And so those types of um, things play into the population growth, the demographics uh, of making sure that government, in this case, the federal government is making the appropriate investments to the region. Another reason why um, making sure that people are accounted for in the census uh, is critical. Um, how do we, because um, here, here in the Valley, Calexico especially, we have, a, you know, this issue. It's not an issue, but, you know, we live in the border. Um, a lot of, a lot, California um, has probably one of the highest uh, rates when it comes to property owner you know, ownership. You know, people can't afford, you know, to pay a mortgage or to pay a rent. So here in the Valley, we have this thing where, you know, we have a lot of people who are U.S. citizens, but in order to survive, they go to Mexicali to rent where it's cheaper. Um, how do we help these people stay here? That way, you know, they get counted that way because at the end of the day, you know, we've, we saw that, you know, they're using our services, you know, your citizens that are living in Mexicali are coming down to, to the Imperial Valley to get treated for, for let's say COVID right now, you know, we're dealing with this pandemic. So how do we, you know, help out these people to, um, get a, uh, affordable living, affordable housing. So California, without a question, is an expensive place to live. Right? Uh, it is an expensive place to live uh, for a lot of different reasons. And one of the unique things about where we live and the area that I get to represent, and you're speaking of Calexico as one particular location, but really the region as a whole, um, relatively speaking, in comparison to other parts of the state, are are, are affordable. But yet still not affordable for the majority of working families in our district. And so what do we got to do? Well, the issue of um, building more housing certainly um, can attribute to making it more attainable from the standpoint of supply and demand and keeping costs at, at a reasonable level. But really it goes back to uh, what are we doing and what can we do more of? And th this is a conversation I had earlier today with a member of Governor Newsom's um, executive team related to the COVID-19 situation in Imperial and Riverside County, where how do we bring greater investment to our region to improve the quality of jobs and salaries for people to actually be able to afford to live nearby their place? And without a doubt, that conversation is interconnected with our educational um, uh, programs and services and how well we are preparing our students, whether it be to go into the workforce or to go on to higher education and create the opportunities for them in order to return back to the region uh, to add greater value, not just as uh, professionals, but also the value that they bring uh, to be able to obtain a possible professional career in whatever they studied to increase um, the opportunities, right, of economic 
uh, mobility and be able to afford the homes that are being built in Imperial County. So this crisis and the current circumstances of COVID-19 is shedding a lot of light on the many challenges that we have in our border region. And that was the message to the executive representative of Governor Newsom's team that I spoke with today. I said, uh, we're having these challenges with COVID-19. Our numbers continue to increase. We're still not able to fully open up the economy because of that. Uh, but here's the deal. Um, our challenges uh, come way before COVID-19 with uh, economic uh, challenges as it relates to our unemployment rates, um, as it relates to our inability to attract investment that's going to bring good quality paying jobs for the people who live in Imperial County to then be able to, again, afford to live uh, and buy a home in Imperial County. And so, you know, right now, much of the work in the legislature has been narrowed down to economic recovery type of legislative um, proposals and, of course, reactive uh, proposals to COVID-19 crisis and expanding healthcare services uh, in areas that need it the most. Uh, and without a doubt, also looking at how the issue of the digital divide is playing a role into all of that, not just the distance learning uh, challenges that we're seeing in our educational institution, but also the delivery of healthcare via you know, these technologies um, like we're doing here today, or for that matter, um, the need for uh, this type of uh, technology to also be in the hands of our small businesses uh, to be able to survive uh, in this particular climate and moving forward. So um, long answer to your question, more specifically, uh, bringing more investment, tying it and aligning it to our educational institutions to prepare you know, the workforce and be able to ultimately create greater value uh, and economic upward mobility for people to actually be able to live in Imperial County. Uh, and, you know, I recognize that some people um, by choice uh, work here in the United States and live in, in Mexico, but there's a lot of people that would prefer right, to live here if they could afford to live here uh, and really take on the cost of being able to live here. So that's a really good question. And a lot of work that we have um, to do in that area. And I think that we have to look at this crisis as an opportunity to really shed light on the many challenges that we have in our border region and that we've had for decades, right? It isn't a, uh, the unemployment issue in Imperial County wasn't born uh, uh, right before the COVID-19 or after the COVID-19. We've had decades long of, you know, chronic high unemployment rates, Um for a lot of different reasons, but I think it's a it's time and an opportunity to actually do something about it. Um, you talk about education. Um, you know, we know that you know due to COVID and you know the circumstances we're in, um, you know our budget took a, a big hit or is going to take a big hit. Um, and and being somebody that's worked in education for the past twenty years, you know it felt like we were finally you know getting our heads out of the you know out of the water you know feeling a little bit you know, more able to provide um, materials, whether it's technology, where it's, uh, you know, paper, like day-to-day materials. How is this, you know, budget cut, budget crisis going to affect, you know, or what is the state 
doing to limit the impact on you know education so so we have what we all refer to right as a point of reference as proposition 98 right in california that secures um that whatever funding um goes to schools um has a certain uh commitment um by proposition 98 uh, ensuring that uh, uh based on revenues coming in that here is the allocation that goes to our public education system right kind of a there's probably some teachers out there that could summarize it uh, much better than I can, but nevertheless, it secures certain levels of funding for public education, um, depending on the revenues that the state of California is having. So on good years, right, Proposition 98 delivers on making sure that we are fully funding and exceeding in some areas uh, the level of investment that we're making to public education for purposes of classrooms and teacher salaries and making sure that the programs and services are, are really fully funded. California has always been challenged uh, in that arena. You know, 45th, 46th of the 50 states when it comes to public education funding and up until recently, making some strides and improving on those statistics and those levels of investment. Clearly with um, revenues in California down, that means that that will have a significant impact on all of the investments that we make on a reoccurring basis. The Senate and the Assembly has countered the governor's budget proposal, the $54 billion shortfall for this coming year, uh, with saying, hey, we've got to use more of our rainy day funds and our reserves to not impact things like public education. And so uh, this week, there will be some deliberation on the proposals coming from the Senate and the Assembly to counter a lot of the cuts, somewhere in the range of like $10 billion of cuts that were proposed in the governor's may revise for public education that hurts, you know, regions like ours the most, uh, given the uh, limited uh, funding sources that exist locally. Property taxes, right, don't fund entirely our public education locally, right? It's the state support that we receive and other funding uh, sources that come uh, to our public education institutions. And so we're doing everything uh, we're part of conversations to come up with other funding mechanisms uh, through different avenues to make sure that we're not cutting things like public education or our services to our seniors, or for that matter, that we're not cutting services for people with uh, developmentally uh, disabled um, circumstances. I mean, they're really the populations that need us the most, and we got to make sure that we don't impact those programs and services uh, for those targeted populations and public education really making up a large portion of the state, you know, budget. Uh, we have to make sure that we uh, protect uh, those uh, investments. We've made some really important uh, strides in the last couple of years in improving the amount of money that we invest in our classrooms uh, and trying, of course, to reduce classroom sizes. And um, We've made some strides. There have been some efforts also to improve, you know, facilities uh, with the passing of school bonds and local uh, voters also supporting improving facilities uh, locally. I know there's some great work going on at Calexico High School and the Unified School District and other school districts who have program improvements to the facilities, the environment in which our students are, are learning in uh, matters. It makes a significant difference. Uh, and so we have to continue in those 
and those uh, lines of thinking. Uh, but we we are forecasting some really difficult financial times. And I think across the board, um, cities and counties and school districts are projecting some really challenging times. But, you know, for us, we have to set those priorities. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, we ultimately have to narrow down what our priorities are and what most people agree on is making sure that things like public education continue to be fully funded to the best uh, and the most that we can. Hey guys, sorry for the interruption, but it's time to pay some bills. So here's a word from one of our sponsors. All right, so now back to our regularly scheduled podcast. Um, earlier you spoke about, um, you know, air pollution, air quality here in the Valley. I know recently you secured um, some money, the money that was set for the new river. Um, you know, because this kind of ties into where we're at in terms of, you know, our population at the hospitals and, you know, covid um, we know that COVID-19 affects, you know, the lungs, affects, you know, people who have unhealthy lungs. Um, and we live in an area where, you know, due to the border, due to the new river, due to Salton Sea, you know, all this kind of ties into how our population is being affected the most um, in terms of this this, this disease. Um, you know, like you said earlier, um, you know, the 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 issues with our unemployment aren't something that affect, you know, wasn't started with COVID or just before COVID, you know, the issues with the salt and sea and the new river isn't something that's new either, you know, and then um, now with the budget cuts and all these, all these things going on, how is the progress, you know, going to continue in working with, you know, the new river, salt and sea, how's, you know, how are we going to, keep that a focus now that, you know, we're going through all these hard times. So look, the, the, the way that we've been able to bring greater attention to the issues happening in our region have been through the lens of public health uh, and how these air quality issues, these water quality issues are affecting the public health of the people who live in our district. And we started framing the issues uh, in that manner in 2015, 2016, when I first uh, uh, was elected to this position, because I realized that much of the conversation in Sacramento and in the more affluent communities of the state, when they're talking about protecting the environment, they were talking about, you know, protecting our oceans uh, and uh, and our trees and um, and you know uh, endangered species. And, and that right there, that message, although it's important and it resonates with folks, even in our district, it doesn't resonate as strong as talking about the many kids in Imperial County or Eastern Riverside County who have asthma. That includes my five-year-old little girl. And that people with compromised immune systems are more likely to suffer from other types of health problems. And in this particular time, we're talking about COVID-19, people being more susceptible to uh, catching the virus because of their compromised immune system and their lungs uh, not operating in full capacity. So when making arguments in uh, Sacramento about why we need to prioritize these types of issues like funding for the New River, uh, we're able to make that argument very clear cut 
and uh, and people are empathetic to the circumstance and also understanding that these have been uh, these have been problems that have been prevailing uh, without any real resolution for decades in our region. And so, you know, right now we're 10 days away uh, finding out in the final budget that's uh, to be signed uh, by the governor by June 15th by law, uh, whether or not the uh, $28 million in its entirety stay in the budget for the new river. I'm very optimistic about it, that it will, because we've made our case in the assembly, in the Senate. And right now the biggest champion for that, aside from um, our representatives uh, locally, uh, our nonprofit organizations working on this issue, and the residents of Calexico and Imperial County that have been dealing with this issue, is the administration. I got to give the administration a lot of credit for uh, seeing the connection between the public health crisis that's before us, the public health crisis that's been um, in existence because of a problem like the New River and the Salton Sea, and that they're also making the commitments to invest in these projects. And so look, the $28 million for the New River isn't going to solve the entire problem, but it's going to address the first phase of cleanup in the Calexico community, the people who have directly been impacted the most and where we can talk to families uh, uh, who can tell you that they believe that, you know, the passing of a, of a member of their family or a disease that they've had to deal with um, that has to do with cancer or other type of, you know, diseases is attributed to the environmental problem of the new river. And, uh, you know, that to me is, is significant enough to have made this a priority. And, and we're, if I, we were talking about a football game, we're like at the 10-yard line. And we were like uh, on second down, you know, we've got like three, two more, you know, plays to call to get into the end zone and score. And uh, I feel really good about it. But look, we are also planning a plan B and a plan C uh, and looking to our federal partners in making sure that they back up our effort. Uh, it's a binational cross-border issue where it's the federal government that has a huge um, responsibility and liability along with the state. Uh, so, you know, we're pushing and we're hopeful that it ends up in the budget to be able to get this project off the ground uh, in the next year or so. Um, what can a community do to kind of like push this, like help this get pushed through? So I'll tell you, over the last two weeks, the community has been very involved, uh, really engaged. Uh, there were two hearings in the Senate and in the Assembly where a lot of members of the community, uh, organizations that have been working on the issue, and city and county leaders were calling in uh, live to um, show their support for the proposal and the budgets. And now the focus will be uh, to write and call the governor's office to ensure that it stays in the final negotiations of the budget uh, that we will be voting on in the next week or so, um, and ultimately um, making sure that the money is secured and that we can get these projects like the New River Phase 1 uh, improvement plan uh, built in Calexico. Uh, to me, I was on the phone today with a Calexico native who works here in in, uh, in Sacramento. His name is uh, Marcos Lizarraga. He runs La Cooperativa uh, Campesina. 
an organization connected to the uh, organizations like CET uh, that does training, workforce training. Um, you know, he grew up on the border. He grew up in Mexicali, Calexico. And uh, as a kid, he said to me, because uh, he was excited to see how close we are to potentially securing this funding in the budget, he, 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 uh, he contracted polio at an early age. And, and, and he believes that it was from the toxic waste that flows through the new river where they used to play as kids. And so, you know, those types of stories, um, they resonate, right? They resonate to the point that you commit yourself to this kind of work and, and, and you don't let go, right? And we're going to keep pushing uh, because even after the $28 million, if, if God willing, it's secured and the support of the governor, uh, it's in the budget. We have another project that uh, involves a new river, and that's potentially building a treatment plant on, on this side of the border to clean up the other parts of the new river, right? And making sure that the water flowing into the Salton Sea is cleaner than what it currently is today to also help with those efforts as it relates to water flows to the Salton Sea to mitigate the drying up areas. Um, and I mean, that, that's a whole other conversation, but nevertheless, there's more to be done even after the securing of $28 million is really the point that I'm trying to, to make along with the story that I share about a Calexico native who I spoke to today, um, who was really excited to see how close we are to uh, being able to secure this first uh, phase of funding. Um, something that also, you know, you mentioned about, you know, immunocompromised people that, you know, are affected um, because of COVID-19. Um, how does the state promote healthy, healthier living? A lot of people, especially people of color, you know, are affected with diabetes, heart problems. Um, but yet, especially in the Hispanic communities, people aren't, are a little bit afraid of going to the doctor because of medical bills. Um, just, just that, you know, culture where like, oh, no, nothing's going to happen to me. How do we, how do you as a state, you know, help promote? Um, you know, or help these people, you know, get to the doctor? So the first part of all this is, you know, promoting access to healthcare, right? And making sure that people have the ability uh, to be insured, have some kind of coverage, which is why, you know, California stood strong and behind the uh, Affordable Care Act that was, you know, put into uh, play by uh, former President uh, Barack Obama at the federal government level. And then, at the state level, it was covered California, making sure that as many people as possible have uh, insurance, right? Or some type of plan to be able to access, you know, care. Uh, at the same time, you know, we talk a lot about there are still pockets of people who are uninsured. Uh, and many times it's our hardworking, undocumented population in California, right? Uh, people working as essential workers, uh, during this COVID-19 crisis in the fields or in other, you know, trades like construction or hospitality industries. Um, it is said that there's approximately 50 to 60% of those individuals working in those specific industries that are uh, working without the proper documentation. And so how do we make sure that they too have access to healthcare, which is why the state slowly has been expanding its ability to provide healthcare insurance uh, to those who are working in California, who are paying into the tax system and the social security system, 
uh, under uh, their ITIN numbers, right, uh, to also have access to healthcare. So that's one thing that we've been doing. The other thing um, really is promoting the idea of continuing to build the healthcare infrastructure, uh, making sure that we are expanding um, the actual industry of healthcare. Uh, we need to build more um, hospitals, um, or for that matter, build more primary care um, uh, type of uh, facilities so that people don't end up in the hospital. It's, it's the preventative type of care that we need more of in order to prevent people from ending up in the hospital to be treating uh, their illnesses that many times were illnesses that were preventable if identified early on, right? And so those are the areas that we continue to push on. For me, uh, we've been working very closely with the region to establish a program uh, with the universities uh, to be able to have resident programs for more doctors and medical professionals to come do their residency um, training in our region because the likelihood of them staying in the area becomes greater and we continue to build our healthcare infrastructure through capacity of having professionals treating you know, our folks in Imperial County. And so those are some of the things that we've promoted uh, through legislation, through funding mechanisms, uh, to be able to expand the access. And then of course, indirectly, um, you know, I've been really uh, big in championing uh, issues like investing into our park infrastructure. Uh, as mayor in Coachella, um, I uh, was a big proponent of investing into our park systems, uh, fixing the old ones and building new ones. Um, the population had grown, but not the amount of park spaces to accommodate for all the new families and existing families. And so at the state level, I've had the opportunity to work on several big statewide initiatives where we've seen some of the fruits of that work pay off to delivering on some really good um, announcements that were made over the course of this last year, where some of the cities in our district, including in Imperial County, have received some good sizable grants, uh, Calexico being one of them, uh, $8.5 million grant to refurbish a park in its entirety, where I think currently it is an eyesore in a part of the community um, that, uh, you know, many people live in and have to drive by. Um, improving our park systems directly and indirectly is a form of promoting health and wellness in our communities, getting people to the near park. And hopefully there's one uh, in, within proximity of many neighborhoods in town where they can go out and walk with the family, exercise, uh, congregate with their friends, clearly not during this particular time, but um, that's been an area of much interest and, uh, and a priority for us, building parks, refurbishing old parks to be able to uh, promote the issue of health and wellness through recreation as well. Um, so those are, those are ways that uh, we, we promote you know, health and wellness as a state and, and more specifically how we've been working on these types of issues to promote uh, public health and wellness. And again, you know, the issue of environmental problems that we face, um, I've been able to successfully have them um, agreed upon in Sacramento because we framed them through the lens of public health and uh, and the needs that people have. Um, 
during this this whole uh, pandemic, we noticed that uh, sometimes um, the states can really rely on the federal government to supply them with medical needs that we need. PPE, for example, you know, yeah. for our nurses and doctors. Uh, what is the state doing now? That do we have some kind of task force or somebody looking into being better prepared for these kinds of situations? Absolutely, I think uh, this this crisis has has pushed us all to, and we're we're not in full um, recovery mode yet, right? We're still reacting and responding to the crisis at hand, where you have certain regions of the state that continue to to be of concern, right? Uh, with numbers continuing to increase and um, uh, capacity issues. But but what we are starting to talk about is reflecting on the response and the preparedness uh, that we had. And one thing is, you know, there have been uh, legislative proposals already that have gone through the process and or budget allocation requests where we actually start stockpiling, you know, certain types of uh, medical equipment uh, that we need, whether it's a very similar crisis or a different crisis of emergency, but that we will need to have stockpiles of not just ventilators or protective, you know, equipment for our professional uh, medical, um, you know, uh, experts. And uh, but there are other things. I mean, are we um, supplied enough uh, at our fire departments uh, to be able to respond uh, to certain emergencies? Our emergency services, our, our, our communication systems um, up to par to be able to respond effectively, right? I mean, there's all this discussion going on. And um, yeah, I think this has been a learning lesson for everyone across the country, including California. But as it relates to you know, California and the federal government, I mean, we've taken it upon ourselves and the governor has done uh, the job of really leading us and making some executive decisions, some not so popular than others, but he's made the decisions to make some serious investments in making sure that we can supply, you know, those professionals on the ground. And we have a lot of work to do still. I mean, a uh, billion dollars were spent on supplies to be able to get out to our essential workers. And, and that doesn't seem to be enough to address all of the needs uh, in our hospitals, our clinics, our senior um, uh, health institutes, our grocery workers, our farm workers. I mean, there's a long list of, of, of folks who are out there working who are still struggling uh, to uh, obtain some of the protective equipment that they need. And so, uh, yes, there's a, a work group that's been put together, everything from looking at this current crisis, but also looking at the at the next crisis. You know, we've, uh, we're a state that, that unfortunately has seen a series of crises, whether it be the the drought uh, that put uh, in place, you know, places in the state where we didn't even have water and we had to respond uh, to those communities, um, uh, bring in uh, remote, you know, places for them to fill up for water, for basic things like cooking and cleaning and bathing, uh, to the issue of uh, unprecedented amount of fires in the state, right? And so there are a lot of different uh, emergencies that the state has experienced over the last five, 10 years that uh, really uh, forces us to do a better job in preparing. And, and of course, no one ever expected um, this biological uh, virus uh, emergency that we have faced that uh, really has had a significant impact on a lot of people. Um, 
on the economy and of course and how we interact with one another moving forward so um, that's a really good question where uh, we're going to have a lot of work to do once we are in the more reflective mode of seeing what we could have and should have done different and how we uh, prepare for the next uh, crisis that we may face yeah um you know we've been focusing a lot of on COVID 19 um and I, I just kind of wanted to leave this question towards the end because we're almost at an hour. Um, but, you know, we're, in, we're the, these last couple of weeks, these last couple of months, we've been, you know, through these his, historic, you know, events, the COVID, you know, budget crisis, all these things. But something that, that recently has overshadowed all that is, you know, the, the killing of uh, George Floyd. Um, you know, right now everybody is mad and for good reason. Um, I feel that, um, I don't know. It's, it's something I haven't really talked, talked about this with anybody. And, um, you know, I'm having a hard time because I don't know how, you know, it's, what do we, what, what are we do? What do we do? Like, how do we change? You know, we, cause I think that right now we're at a point where, um, I mean, excuse excuse my French, but shit has hit the fan. You know, people are are tired tired of it, um, and it took you know somebody recording this gruesome event to you know m- you know hit the, this point. Um, so what I don't know, like I don't I don't even know what to ask you or how to phrase it. How what what's your opinion on this? That uh, again, we have witnessed a racist act uh, against a black person that turned out to be fatal and that there's absolutely no excuse for that type of conduct coming from anyone and more so from law enforcement who we expect and depend to protect us. And although we have witnessed this, the longest eight minute video that you could probably ever witness um, and not ignore. But in the early 1990s, we saw another video of another black man being beat by a multitude amount of police officers in Los Angeles. And we witnessed a jury say they were not guilty. And we also witnessed an uproar and of people saying enough with this injustice system that is biased and racist against people of color. And here we are decades later having to confront and have this discussion again. And look, it racism is real. And it's embedded in many of our institutions, including our police departments. And the only way that that changes is through public policy and through leadership at law enforcement levels to embed a different culture of how we police our communities across the board. But it's real. In the last two days, we've seen it firsthand outside uh, this Capitol building in Sacramento on how upset people are. And of course, we don't, you know, we don't um, uh, recognize 
and celebrate the destruction um, and the rioting and the root and the looting that has taken place. We promote the protest uh, of the peaceful folks who are making their voice heard uh, very loud and very clear that the racism in this country is real, that black people, brown people, and other people of color have faced it for many, many decades, you know? Um, and this video that we all have seen is absolutely horrifying because I have, you know, a 16 year old son that um, we have had to talk to him about how you react and how you behave uh, in circumstances when law enforcement is engaging you um, to ask you some questions, pull you over, what have you. I have nephews that are biracial um, who also have had to hear the talk that because of the color of their skin, um, that they will be treated differently uh, at times by law enforcement or in other types of circumstances. And that's a really difficult conversation to have um, with young boys um, and young women uh, because uh, the racism and discrimination isn't uh, uh, gender neutral, it's, it's, it's across the board, right? And so uh, what I can tell you is this, you know, today I signed a, um, a request uh, to co-author a piece of legislation that will make it illegal for anyone to use their knee on a suspect or a detainee um, uh, under the custody of law enforcement, that that no longer be you know, allowed um, and that it be made very clear to law enforcement across the state of California in their academies that that right there will end up um, having you um, suspended, um, fired, or for that matter, prosecuted for murder, like the officer who was caught on video doing this um, to the person in Minneapolis. And so I know it's a difficult subject, but it's a real one that we cannot turn our blind eye to. Um, because if you've seen that video, it was hard to watch, but just as hard um, to ignore that uh, that this country has a really uh, big stain on it. Um, and it's the history of racism uh, that has affected a lot of people uh, of color, specifically uh, African-Americans and uh, people of uh, Latino uh, descent in this country. And so, uh, you know, what what's my role? It's continued to push public policy at the state level um, to improve uh, accountability, transparency when it comes to not just law enforcement, but across the board, uh, discrimination and racism in corporations that happens, right? Uh, gender pay equity issues, right? Uh, all those things. I, I could share with you two years ago, we were supporting legislation that, that forces police departments to disclose information about officers who may have track records of um, misconduct. And you know what? 
law enforcement across the state, police unions across the state, they, they, were, they were not happy with that legislation. And they were lobbying really hard for that legislation for a lot of reasons not to pass. And, and it passed and I supported it because uh, I, I believe that it's, it leads to the preventative um, stages of seeing an incident like this. This is an officer, if we're talking about the same you know, situation in Minneapolis, who has 17, 18 other complaints against him. Right. At some point after two, three, four or five, there's a red flag. And uh, and at what at what point does leadership in our police department say this is not a person that's fit to be a defender of the law and a protector uh, of the citizens? Uh, a couple years ago, we, we supported a policy for the, the cameras, right, for uh, law enforcement agencies to have the cameras and to have that information made available. Uh, to the public uh, when incidents arise. Law enforcement agencies, not all of them, but a good portion of them, not in support of those issues. Um, it passed and we supported it. And so we got to continue to push those types of policies um, that uh, make sure that there's transparency and accountability. But again, this isn't an issue that just uh, pertains to law enforcement. You know, discrimination and racism is real in other institutions of the government. And we've got a lot of work to do in that area. Yeah. And I mean, I just want to put this out there that, you know, we all know that not all police officers are, are you know, bad. Um, you know, although, you know, every police officer that goes out there every day is putting their life on the, on the line. And, you know, we appreciate that. But, you know, there there are a few apples that are like this. But the thing is that in this field of, of profession, there shouldn't be any bad apples because, we are depending on them to help us. You know, we need to feel safe, you know, that we're not getting that bad apple coming, you know, to us and treating us the way they've, you know, they treated this man. And no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we cannot blanket, you know, uh, this incident and, and apply it to that every uh, person who puts on the badge um, and goes out there and puts their li life on the line every night is, is the same. We can't. Uh, we can't do that. Um, we know that there are people that genuinely care uh, about the safety and well-being of, of other people in our communities and and our hats off to them. You know, we we've seen uh, police chiefs and sheriffs um, uh, come out and be outspoken about this incident. And, and that's what we need more of, uh, along with uh, police officers, um, so that the community uh, sees uh, their genuine care and interest about uh, addressing this problem uh, that is rooted in police departments up and down our country and in our state and in our backyard. Uh, and so uh, when law enforcement comes together with community and the protesters that are out there uh, uh, making their voice heard peacefully, um, I think that's the beginning of coming up with potential solutions to addressing the, the problems that we have as it relates to community policing and uh, trust uh, that uh, that is lacking today more than ever. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, we're at an hour already. <clears throat> and um, like I said, I wanted to keep it in an hour because I know, you know, you've been working all day um, and you have something else to do in a little bit. And um, I wanted to give you a little break in between, you know, this and, you know, whatever you're having to do in a little bit. Um, 
But anything else that you would like to add that, you know, we didn't touch upon? Well, look, man, I, I want to tell you that uh, what a great opportunity uh, this has been. Uh, not course. only to talk to, to your audience um, um, about who we are, the things that we care about in terms of our priorities as a lawmaker and representative for, for them um, uh, and the region. Um, look, we, we uh, appreciate, you know, serving. Uh, public service uh, wasn't something that, you know, I, I thought I'd be doing um, if you asked me. You know, when I was uh, running around at 16, 17 years old uh, with my cousins in Mexicali at the Forum or or hanging out in, at Hopeville at George's Pizza, right? It, that, that, it was never a, an idea, right, that I had that I would be um, in Sacramento uh, representing 500,000 people. And I truly um, um, really honor, you know, the, the responsibility and I appreciate um, people allowing me to, to serve them. Uh, we've talked about a lot of things uh, that are important uh, on, on real time, um, as the governor would say, he uses the word real time situations. Um, for me, you know, we're dead focused right now on securing that money for the Imperial County uh, as it relates to the new river. We're, we're dead focused on making sure that the state um, continues to work collaboratively with the county in this particular COVID-19 crisis. There's another uh, testing site that is opening up in Calexico that we want to encourage people to uh, to get tested regardless of symptoms or not, because that's going to help us um, at the end of the day, improve our numbers as it relates to positive negative cases and ultimately begin opening up the economy in its entirety. Right. We have a serious crisis on the other side of the border related to COVID-19 that we have to uh, have some collaboration and communication with folks over there as well to make sure that it doesn't continue to um, enhance uh, the seriousness of the problem in our region as a whole. And, you know, we, Imperial Valley, Mexicali, we're a region, right? We're a region and it's hard to, to, to use that border fence um, when, we, when, we, when we see advantage of, of people coming over to shop and spend and invest. It's a good thing. But when they want to come over here and use our services, oh, well, they should stay over there. I mean, we, we're a region and we have to look at it that way and work collaboratively in order to address the issues, it's it's a challenge because we're dealing with two countries and we're dealing with other rules and things of that sort. But and then the the, also the amount, the population difference. Yeah, we have a million people, million plus people. It's not an easy task, right? And uh, and so um, you know we're 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 focused on making sure that you know again the state is playing its role. And and lastly, you know we also uh, want to make sure that we are um, accessible. Um, uh, visible, and that uh, folks in Imperial uh, County know that they can count on us and our office if they need any assistance uh, with any state-related agency, unemployment uh, office, the DMV, or any other type of state-related agency. We want to let them know that our office is is here to be helpful. Um, and a little plug, you know, uh, Stella Jimenez is our district director. Uh, our office is at the airport. Uh, the number to contact our office is 760-355-8656 in case anyone has any questions or any issues related to a state agency. Uh, the majority of calls that we've been getting have to do with uh, the unemployment insurance and the status of the application. So we want to encourage folks to give us a call if they have any questions. Um, and with that, I just want to just again say thank you, man. I look forward to uh, being able to be part of your show again. Uh, to be able to give you an update on what's happening 
in Sacramento or in the district and uh, and be of service uh, to to you and of course to the people that are listening in the podcast. So very much appreciative from Sacramento, uh, the state capital of, uh, of the great state of California, you know, uh, reporting, uh, reporting here uh, to duty, as they would say. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, like I said, I know you're super busy. Um, I know you're working hard. And I'm kind of sometimes I'm kind of glad of COVID-19 because it's allowed me to kind of perfect this medium where I can talk to people because sometimes it's harder to to schedule when we're in person. But, you know, through Zoom, it's much easier to get in touch with people. Um, I want to thank Aurora for, you know, reaching out and also Stella. They, they both reach out to me and and um, and try to make this connection. Also, my friend Frank Gumby Salazar, thank you for our good friend Frank. Yeah. Uh, from Calexico. Yeah, thank you, Frank. Thank you for you know for the connection, and um, like I said, thank you so much. You know, keep keep on working hard like you like you're doing like you're doing, and um, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Don't don't hang up yet, okay? Thank you guys for listening, and um, we'll see you in the next one. Peace.